The reading today is taken from Matthew 4, which you can find on um, page 967 of the Blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Thank you, Sarah, and uh, good morning, everyone. (laughs) Hey, listen, could you keep your Bibles open to page 967? Uh, We'll get to that in just a second. Can I just um, offer a clarification? Just about everything Andrew, who's leading our service, says is true. But just to be super clear, on Christmas Eve, those three family services, the ones with all the camels and the hoo-ha, the reminder is that unless you're a volunteer you need to line up for a wristband. If you're a volunteer, don't worry, but unless you're a volunteer, you do need to line up for a wristband, even if your child or grandchild is in the performance, okay? And uh, because there is no car parking in the Manly Village car park, you just got to factor in time. I think that's what we're trying to say. Uh, It's a busy service, there are lots of people, so get here early, factor it all in, and you will avoid disappointment, which is what I'm all about, folks. It's what I'm all about. Let's pray and we'll get to work. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us in coming among us uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him. We want to be more like him. We want to know more about him. So help us to do all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Friends, I like a good shortcut. I know you do too. We all like shortcuts. And the reason why we like shortcuts is because, as the name implies, you get to cut some of the effort or the time or the work out of something that might be difficult or time-consuming. You think about a shortcut when you're driving, it means you get where you're going quicker. The drive takes less time. A shortcut when you're studying means you borrow somebody else's work, which means you get the job done with less effort, maybe like no effort, and you can get to the fun stuff more quickly. I mean, who doesn't like that? Sometimes companies take shortcuts that really don't pay off. Uh, For example, a couple of years ago, Richard Branson, the head of Virgin Airlines, he received a complaint about the quality of in-flight desserts on his airline. And here's part of the complaint letter. You don't get to a position like yours, Richard, with anything less than a generous sprinkling of observational power, so I know you will have spotted the tomato next to the two yellow shafts of sponge cake on the left. Now, Richard, that's got to be the clue, hasn't it? No sane person would serve a dessert with tomato, would they? Well, answer me this, Richard. What sort of animal would serve a dessert with peas in it? (laughs) 
See, Virgin Airlines, it's taking a shortcut with its in-flight meals. Now, normally taking shortcuts is okay. Uh, no real damage is done. But I suspect that we take shortcuts in the Christian life all the time as well. You know, instead of taking the effort required to build a deepening relationship with God through uh, reading His living word and prayer, we sort of just come to church regularly, but we don't really give ourselves in worship and we don't really pray with the prayer. We may not even open our Bibles during the Bible reading. We don't necessarily try to stay with the preacher and we don't really try to have deep and spiritual conversations with our fellow believers afterwards. We take a shortcut. We mumble our way through the songs. We just say amen at the end of prayers. Um, we just listen into the illustrations if they're good uh, and maybe have shallow conversations. Now, that might just be me. And that's really just Sundays. I mean, what about you? What about the rest of the week? Because we'd rather take shortcuts instead of following God in obedience and waiting for the good things he has in store for us. And, you know, sometimes our shortcuts, they actually amount to sinfulness instead of obeying him and trusting his goodness for us. Today we're going to see that Jesus is fully human. Now that's at the very core of what we celebrate at Christmas time. He was fully human, that means one of us. But because he refused to take shortcuts, give in to temptation, take the easy way out, he is by far the better human, the greater human. That's what we're thinking about today. Now so far in this series we've seen that Jesus uh, doesn't just sort of suddenly appear in the pages of the Gospels from out of nowhere like the solitary figure, the hero of the spaghetti western film. He's got a backstory, an Old Testament that is rich not just in prophecies which anticipate his arrival but also in types, uh, templates, moulds, offices, shoes for him to fill, uh, really for him to supersede. He is the greater prophet. He is the greater judge. He is the greater priest and the greater king. And today we conclude this series in perfect time for Christmas in which he is our greater hope by discovering how he is the greater human and how that benefits us today. But before we jump into him being the greater human, we, we, we need to establish that he was human and fully human in the first place because I think, we tend to think, that he really skated through his earthly life, free from temptation, simply because he was God. You know, no temptation was really that real, no struggle really that difficult. After all, he's God in the flesh. Well, yeah, he's God in the flesh from before time, but that does not mean he wasn't fully human, that he wasn't really tempted, that he didn't really struggle, and so on. He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, but he entered the world via her birth canal, quite literally born of this humble and faithful young woman, even though she was a virgin. And if you think about it, it could have been possible. I mean, it's not beyond the realms of God's ability to form Jesus, his eternal son, into a complete human being in heaven and send him down to earth, formed without the benefit of a human parent. He could have done that. But the virgin birth makes possible the combination of the full divinity, the full godness, and the full humanity in a single person. If God just flung down a human form from heaven, it'd be very difficult for us to see how Jesus could be as fully human as we are. And he wouldn't be a part of the race that was physically descended from Adam. But that's exactly what he was. 
He had a human body that grew through childhood to adulthood. He had a human mind that went through a learning process. I mean, I, I think we think he was born with complete and full knowledge of everything. You know, he had to learn how to eat, to walk, to talk, how to be obedient to his parents. Have a look at this verse from Luke chapter 2, verse 40, where it says that after Jesus was born, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 is even more remarkable. You may not have noticed this before, but look at what it says. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He grew in favor with God. It, it's actually, I think it's the most remarkable thing. He grew in favor with God. Yes, he grew in wisdom and stature in his mind and in his body, but he even grew in favor with God. You know, I think that's a remarkable thing to think about and ponder. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 says this, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, I know it's like three days before Christmas, and you're not meant to be disrupted, right? Life's too oppressive as it is. But you've got to see those verbs are disruptive verbs, right? He grew in favor with God. He learned obedience. He was made perfect. I don't think it means that he was previously imperfect or that he wasn't previously obedient, but it means that as he grew, as he developed, he developed a deepening obedience. He was made perfect in the sense of proving his perfection under pressure. I mean, can you really be perfect if you've never really been tested? The older he became, the more demands his human parents put on him in terms of obedience and the more difficult the tasks his heavenly father laid upon him to carry out in the strength of his humanity one writer has even put it this way his moral backbone was strengthened by more and more difficult exercise yet in all of this he never sinned You've got your Bibles open there, Matthew 3, actually. You fast forward 30 years from Jesus' human birth to the Judean wilderness. There is a wild man on the scene called John the Baptist. I'd be scared of him, I think. And he's preaching repentance from sin. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, literally dunking them uh, in the water to symbolize their forgiveness. Uh, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, he's an out there kind of fella. He wears clothes made of camel hair and he eats locusts and wild honey. But the, the people of Israel are flocking to him as he preaches this baptism of repentance, a turning away from sins and a turning back to God. And both John the Baptist himself and Matthew, who is reporting it for us, can see that John is preparing the way for the one, the Lord, God's appointed servant king. And then chapter 3, verse 13, have a look at it. One day Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan River and bang, John knows this is the man who he's been waiting for, who he's been preparing the way for. This is the one who will truly gather the repentant to himself and cast out the wicked. This is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the one who was to come after John, whose very sandals John was unworthy to untie. But in 3 verse 13, Jesus comes to John to be baptised. Why does he do that? Why, why would Jesus, who had never sinned up to that point, for that matter, after that point, 
go to John, who was preaching repentance from sins, and be baptized in the water, which signified the cleansing of sins. Why would he do that? The answer, at least in part, is to identify with humanity. It's to show that he really is one of us. Now, in the last few weeks, uh, many of us have gone to awards days, presentation days, speech days. So burdensome, aren't they? (laughs) Hard to enjoy, unless, of course, your kid's getting something. Uh, Then it's 30 seconds of glory for three hours of pain, isn't it? And uh, friends, really, you know, the Golden Globes and the Emmys and the Logies and the Oscars, um, they're all the same. They're just grown-up, fancier versions of speech days, right? And they're all terribly boring once you're inside. All the action happens outside, you know, when the actors and the actresses turn up in their big limousines and they get out in $20,000 dresses wearing jewellery worth half a million dollars and that's just the blokes, you know what I mean? Um, Picture of Lady Gaga and they strut down the red carpet and they pose for pictures, paparazzi in front of thousands of adoring fans behind barricades and all that stuff basically says just one thing. I'm above you. I am above you. Big limo above you. How did you get here? The light rail. How long did that take you? The eight o'clock has laughed at that. They thought it was funny. (laughs) Obviously more with it than you guys. Uh, Maybe it was delivery. Overpriced dress above you. Uh, Expensive jewellery above you. Red carpet above you. What's it like to be behind the barricades, trampled in the crowds? See, everything communicates, I'm above you. And of course, the truth is they're not. When Jesus comes, even though he is greater, even though he is above everyone else, as high as the heavens are above the earth, he is born via Mary's birth canal. He grows in body and mind. He learns obedience and perseverance through suffering. He even grows in favour with God. Even though he had not sinned, he identifies with the rest of fallen humanity as he's baptised in the Jordan River by John, a baptism for the repentance or the forgiveness of sins. He's fully human, friends, and with him there are no shortcuts. But of course, the main job for today is to show not just that he's one of us, human, but that he is the greater human. And to do that, I want to very briefly take you from desert to desert to show you that he is a greater Israelite, and then from garden to garden to show you that he is the greater human. So immediately, uh, still in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, immediately after Jesus is baptised by John the Baptist, uh, John chapter 3, he heads into the Jordan, sorry, he heads into the desert, uh, Matthew 4, the wilderness that is, 40 days. 40 nights, okay, 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness after coming out of the water, right? Anyone with a head for the Old Testament makes the connection with the Israelites who after coming out of slavery in Egypt, through the water, through the Red Sea, wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years and they wandered there for so long because they rebelled against God and against his leader Moses and when they were tested, they, were consist- they consistently grumbled. When they were tempted, they consistently gave into temptation way too easily. I think we are to read. God's people, whom he even nicknamed my firstborn son, were led into the desert to be tested and they failed miserably. 
So what we are intently interested in is whether Jesus will do the same as he heads into the desert. So you have it there, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit leads Jesus, angels attend him, but the devil appears to tempt him and deceive him. And three times we hear how the devil tries to get him. Have a look the first time there in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Pretty tempting for a guy who was very hungry, having fasted for so long. Will Jesus use his godness to serve himself or will he use it in obedience to his father? Question is, who are you going to be like, Jesus? Are you going to serve yourself like Israel did, like every other human does? But he responds using the words of God from Deuteronomy. In fact, he answers all three of Satan's temptations from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Have a look at verse 4. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, I'm not going to use my power to serve myself. I won't live according to my appetite. I will live according to the word of God. I will obey the instruction of God. That's in fact what it means to be truly human. Verse 5, Satan brings him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and he tempts him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Angels will lift you up. And you might think, what's wrong with that? People need a miracle to believe in. Might be a good way to kick off your ministry. Satan's even got a Bible verse to back it up. What you've got here is a, I guess it's a kind of temptation to presume upon your relationship with God, to test him, to force him to serve you. It's... It's the kind of thing Israel did in the desert repeatedly. So how does Jesus respond? There in verse 7, quoting Deuteronomy 6. It is also written in Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Unlike Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament, Jesus won't put God to the test. He won't presume upon that relationship for the sake of a party trick. Won't force God to jump when he says jump. He will live in humble obedience to the Father. That is what it means to be truly human. And then when, uh, for a third time in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted. Satan, I guess in a sense, some way, um, maybe it's a vision, puts before Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Give in to me, says Satan, and I'll give you all this. It's an empty promise, of course, because all of Satan's promises are empty promises. But, but he's offering Jesus a shortcut. He's saying you can have the kingdom, but without the cross. You can have it all, the tempter says, without the suffering, without the pain, but without your father. It's a blatant temptation to gain power by bowing the knee to his father's enemy. But Jesus responds from a third time from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He is having none of it. He will get the kingdom, but it will be in obedience to God, not in the service of Satan. He will get the kingdom, but it will be via the cross, without shortcuts, in service of humanity. That's us, not in service of himself. And angels will attend him, as they do in verse 13, but not according to Satan's timetable, where Israel failed, where every other human being failed, where you and I failed. Jesus succeeds. 
from one wilderness to another, from one desert to another, Jesus shows himself to be the greater Israelite, obedient and trusting, where old Israel wasn't. Thirdly for today, if we leave the desert and we go from garden to garden, we discover that not only is Jesus the greater Israelite, he is the greater human. You'll remember our Bible opens Genesis 2, page 2, with the Lord God creating a magnificent garden called Eden. Uh, Eden and Eating, obviously on my mind. <laughs> it is actually. Uh, Eden, placing the man and the woman he created in the midst of its incredible beauty and abundance with a single prohibition. Do not eat from the one tree. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Other than that, go for it. You know, knock yourself out. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever opened the fridge at home and seen some leftover dessert, maybe something in the work fridge, with a note on top of it that says, do not eat? Have you seen that? I've got a picture of one here. <laughs> do not eat my lunch. There are seven shrimp, 4,377 grains of rice. What does it make you want to do? I would eat a grain of rice at a time <laughs> until they worked it out. It makes you want to eat it, doesn't it? It just fuels the temptation. So let's go back to the dessert thing. Um, you take it out, right? And you just you take a little sliver of the dessert and you eat that and it tastes good. So you want more and you cannot hold back. So you take a bigger bit hoping that no one will notice and that tastes even better, like even better than the when the dessert was actually served and then you slice off some more because it's very important that you make it even, isn't it? And that tastes even better. And then before you know it, you have downed the whole lot and all that remains is the note saying, do not eat. Friends, where do you reckon we get that from? Get it from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their inability, uh, their striking inability to carry out the simple instruction of an overly generous wise, loving and kind Heavenly Father. And you know how it ended for them. They ate the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed the basic instruction. And the world has never been the same since. Deeply marred by a virus called sin that has infected everything. Except for one solitary man praying alone in another garden in the middle of the night, a garden called Gethsemane, and he is extremely anguished under crushing pressure. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, he says to his feeble friends. Would he really have to carry out this plan that he co-hatched with his father, a plan of salvation that would require him to go to his physical death, but way more oppressively to experience the right and just judgment of the Father for a whole world full of sins, committed by the likes of you and me. Would he really have to carry out that plan? Falls to the ground and he prays, Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. But then he prays what I think are perhaps the most significant words ever uttered by a human being to God above. Yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. Adam and Eve, our first parents, first humans, disobeyed the very simple command of God 
and then they hide from him. Jesus seeks the face of God in prayer and then willingly submits to a crushing plan, voluntary obedience to a weighty command that would culminate in spiritual torture and his physical death. So here's the thing. We think to be tempted is to be human, to take the shortcut, to serve ourselves, to fail at living in humble obedience to God. We think that's what it means to be truly human. Do we not say nobody's perfect? Say it all the time. Desert to desert shows us that is not the case. Garden to garden shows us that is not the case. Jesus is tempted, yet he does not sin. The fact that he resisted, the fact that he obeyed, the fact that he never sinned, the fact that he says, yet not my will but yours, does not mean he's any less than or any other than human. It means he was the most human, human. It means he was the greater Israelite. It means he was the greater human. And friends, really this, um, this ought to bring us encouragement in so many ways. And dear people oppressed by the car parking situation at Warringah Mall, I know you're oppressed. This encourages us um, because it means he perfectly represents us encourages us because we actually are gifted with his righteousness many, many ways. I want to focus on three distinct encouragements this morning. The first of which is that this greater human shows us what it means to be truly human. He shows us what it looks like to live in dynamic, open and obedient relationship with God despite um, the struggles, the temptations of this earthly life. He shows us how to do it. Even better, he shares his resources. You know, we're, we're so stupid. <sighs> Just think that he skated through his earthly life because of his godness. Do we not see time and again how he made his way through earthly life, relying on the same spiritual resources that he shares with us, other humans? For example, he had the Holy Spirit. Do you not have the Holy Spirit? Brother and sister and child of God? He had Holy Scripture at his fingertips. Uh, I, I believe that we have more in more accessible formats even than he, if only we'd take it to heart. He had prayer, so do we. He had community and God-fearing friends. I reckon yours could be better than his. He had a maturing, a growing character, which you and I can have too. And he even has angels, which are described in, in Hebrews as spirits sent to minister to us. We have all the resources Jesus did, which means in any given situation, we have the option to live in open, dynamic and obedient relationship with God. That is, we have the option not to sin. We don't have to take the shortcut. We need not rebel. We need not disobey. We need not think of ourselves as helpless victims. Of course, many times we won't. But we do have the option to utter, yet not my will, Father, but yours be done. Secondly, what if that's a struggle? What if obedience is a struggle? Temptation is strong. Resistance is weak. You know, we can pray to him in full knowledge that he understands what that is like. You've been let down. You've been tempted by wealth, greed, lust, drunkenness. You've been betrayed by those who you thought you could trust. 
by those who should have looked after you. You've been misunderstood. You've been misquoted. You've been mistreated, deceived. You've been sad. You've been downcast. You've been crushed under the weight of expectations, even self-administered expectations. He knows it. Man, he knows it even better than we do. And that invites us to take the struggle and take the pain to him and to give it to him. There might even be the possibility you can leave it with him. So the first encouragement for us is that the resources that Jesus employed to live an open, dynamic, obedient life with God, he shares with us. The second encouragement is that when we struggle to do that in whatever ways, in whatever ways, he knows the struggle better than even we do. So we can seek him in prayer with optimism. The last encouragement is that whenever the struggle gets the better of us and we fail, we give in, we rebel, we disobey, we take the shortcut again and again and again and again, he does not cast us off, but he invites us back in, into open relationship with him. And so instead of hiding from God, like Adam and Eve did, instead of wandering aimlessly like the Old Testament Israelites did, Because Jesus was the greater human, whose perfect life became a perfect sacrifice for our sins and shortcomings, we can approach him with confidence. He invites us back in. Instead of fear in the face of our weakness and failure, we can have confidence that he invites us back in. Very last thing for today from Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 4. Listen to this. We do not have one in Jesus who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but he didn't sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Desert to desert, he's a greater Israelite. Garden to garden, a greater human who shares his resources, who knows our struggles better than we do, and who still invites us to go to him. So friends, go to him. Go to him. Go to him. Let's go to him right now in prayer as we finish.